Hello and thank you for joining us for this edition of Stratfor Talks, a podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratfor.com. I'm Ben Sheen. As security forces inch closer to Mosul in northern Iraq, we'll be joined by Stratfor senior analyst Sim Tak, Middle East and North Africa analyst Emily Hawthorne, and senior military analyst Omar Lamrani to discuss what the battle to retake this key city from the Islamic State will look like in the weeks and months ahead. Then I'll sit down with Stratfor science and technology analyst Rebecca Keller to explore the viability and applications of Hyperloop, a new technology that essentially involves a levitating train car traveling through a tube at high speed in near vacuum conditions. I'm Stratford Senior Analyst Simtag, and I'm joined here today by Middle East and North Africa Analyst Emily Hawthorne and our Senior Military Analyst Omar Lamrani. We're going to discuss what the battle to retake Mosul from the Islamic State in northern Iraq will look like, both leading up to, during, and following the conflict. Thanks for joining us, Emily and Omar. You're welcome. Thank you. So let's get started by kind of getting a sense of why the battle for Mosul is so significant. There's been a lot of different battle battles throughout Iraq and Syria against the Islamic State. Why does this one stand out? Mosul before uh, 2014, it was the second largest city in Iraq. Um, since January 2014, um, from Mosul and the environs, 3.3 million people have been displaced. So it, it's not the same size that it was then, but... This was an economic engine for northern Iraq. And when the Islamic State moved in in June 2014, they really set up Mosul as their center of operations within Iraq. Also, politically, Mosul was taken by the Islamic State during the rule of Nouri al-Maliki as prime minister of Iraq. And when you think about politically moving forward, and, and now that we have a different prime minister in Iraq, there's some rivalry there between that former prime minister, who's still a very important political figure in Iraq, and the current prime minister, Haider al-Abadi, who has been at the head of the Iraqi security forces and at the head of the Iraqi leadership since Iraq has been able to retake key cities like Tikrit and Fallujah. So this battle is politically important in so many ways and not just within Iraq as well. And from a military sense, um, Omar, um, how, how significant is Mosul as a city, um, as a base of operations to the Islamic State uh, while, while they are getting battered on, on several different fronts? She mentioned the population size, and, and that's really important for two reasons for the Islamic State. Uh, first, it's the recruits. There's a large recruits pool that they can leverage to, to, to get uh, fighters. And then there's, of course, the, the, uh, the taxation, the economic aspect of it when you have a really large uh, city that continues to run, continues to function. There is an economic aspect to that, and obviously you cannot wage a war without a bait and economic base, especially if you're, face, uh, if you're trying to leverage an army and fight a conventional battle. So in that sense, um, if Mosul gets taken or removed from the Islamic State, that's going to be a big blow to their ability to continue to to field uh, an army and, and face off against their various enemies. Now, unlike all of these, uh, or a lot of these other battles anyway, there's been a lot of talk leading into the, the offensive on Mosul. People have been announcing this offensive for a very long time. We're, we're finally seeing the start of it. But why... Is the Iraqi government and, and everyone else making such a big public statement about the fact that they are about to go and attack Mosul? I'll start by saying that Mosul this year, this operation is a bookend to what began in 2015, of course, when you had Kurdish forces really securing that northern and northeastern part of the province and of the city. Since that time, politically, this is just one reason why there's been a delay in taking the city. Politically, there's been a lot of back and forth between 
the Kurdistan regional government and Baghdad about the status of the land that is occupied by those forces, the Kurdish forces that were the primary actors pushing the Islamic State out of some of that territory. That's just one of the several aspects that is making it a complicated battle politically because there is a lot of back and forth between the Kurdish government and the government in Baghdad over who is going to administer some of the liberated areas in Mosul afterwards. But there has been recently, um, just in the past couple of months, um, an Iraqi parliamentary decision that said that everything within Nineveh province, which is the greater province that Mosul City is is sitting in, that the borders of the districts within that province are going to adhere to the pre-2003 outline. And that's really important because that was a majority vote in parliament. All the blocs in the Iraqi parliament, uh, a majority of them voted to uphold those borders. So there has been some movement on the question of who is going to administer the liberated areas. Um, But of course, this question also brings in external powers like Iran and Turkey, who are very interested in who administers and who controls northern Iraq. So to speak to some additional reasons why why this battle is being uh, announced in, ahead of time and, and, you know, why it's not really a surprise attack. So obviously there is the uh, the necessity to coordinate the battle, as Emily rightfully pointed out. Um, it's also practically, operationally speaking, very difficult to have strategic surprise on, on a big city like this. Um, the Islamic State is well aware of what's going on behind Iraqi lines. They can see troop movements, etc. But there's other other reasons as well. There's the they need to inform the civilian population that something is coming. I mean, keep in mind right now the estimates are that very big civilian population still remain in Mosul, up to 750,000. It's very important to keep them aware of, of what's happening to so that they can prepare for the battle as well as the necessity to inform the Islamic State itself that something is coming, because the last thing the coalition with all its diverse actors wants is for it to be a pitched battle in the urban terrain. Uh, They don't want to destroy this very symbolic historical city. Uh, It's very difficult going up against an entrenched enemy in urban terrain. So so it's really giving them advance notice. If they get advance notice and they leave the Islamic State militants, then that's still a win for the coalition. So you both have mentioned a lot of different actors and, and problems between them or disputes between them. So, you know, we've got the Kurdish Peshmerga forces, the Iraqi army itself. There's plenty more actors. Um, which forces will actually be part of this offensive and, and how will their roles potentially be different here? Uh, so in terms of forces, I mean, yeah, it's very diverse. First, we have the, the main forces. Those are going to be Iraqi security forces. So military, the army. Uh, special operations forces, all of those are are slated to go inside the city. They're going to be helped by a number of other actors, including auxiliary tribal militia. The Sunnis are going to be very important here, the Sunni tribal fighters, because, again, this is a predominantly Sunni town. You're fighting against the Sunni enemy. You want to show the population that you're coming as a liberator, not as an aggressor. You also have the uh, predominantly Shiite uh, PMU forces or or what is known in Arabic as Hashta uh, Shabi. And those are going to act in auxiliary fashion. They're not slated to go into the city, but will act in the margins and, and hold the perimeter. And then all these forces are going to be coming up to Mosul from the south. But you also have other very important operations to, to constrict the perimeter around Mosul from the north and the east and even to the west. And these are predominantly going to be from the Kurdish Peshmerga fighters, with some embedding from other Iraqi forces. So, yeah, it's a plethora of military actors of this coalition, uh, each with diverse roles, but the main spearhead will fall on the uh, Iraqi security forces themselves. We've seen some discussion of the the Turkish military that is also present uh, close to Mosul. They they have a base 
just north of the city. What is the current status of, of their involvement? Is there is there any way that Turkey will be involved? Um, we've, we've seen the Iraqi parliament be really critical of their, their presence. There's a lot of controversy over Turkey's role in the Mosul operation. And we're seeing a lot of flare-ups in the relationship between Turkey and Iraq over that role right now. But this is just the latest iteration and an ongoing back and forth between Turkey and Iraq that reached a climax back in December 2015 when there were Turkish trainers initially deployed to the Bashika base. They were there to train not only Peshmerga Kurdish forces, uh, they were also there to train a force known as the Hashtwatni. Their name has very recently this week been changed to the Mosul Guard by the leader that is sort of in charge of them, Athila Nujefi, the Nineveh province governor. So Turkey views its role in Mosul as absolutely essential. Baghdad is concerned about this based on the historical claims that Turkey has had in Mosul province. It used to be an Ottoman province, Vilayet Mosul. And Turkey is engaged in the battle against the Islamic State very fully, but does not want to not have a say in exactly how Mosul province is liberated and dealt with afterwards. So that's why you're seeing a lot of consternation between Iraq and Turkey at this juncture. Uh, in addition, there's also, we have to remember here that the Turkish troops themselves are not slated to go into Mosul. So the way they're planning to to shape the operations is with what Emily was talking about, the forces that they've been training. But there's another uh, aspect to Iraqi opposition to, to Turkish presence there. It's also Baghdad could be leveraging the Turkish presence as a way to get the Iraqis together. Um, Abadi is concerned over, over the uh, schisms that are happening within Iraq proper. And so pointing the finger at Turkey and its presence there is, is a way to, to kind of bring this Iraqi nationalism to the forefront and, and sort, of, sort of keep the coalition together, especially as you're coming to an end line here where the question begins, what happens after Mosul gets liberated or taken? Uh, how does this coalition stay, stay together? How do these actors, all of them, function together? Uh, and what happens next in Iraq? I think that's a really important point, And that's why you've seen pretty harsh terms like occupier and infiltrator used in Iraqi press to describe what Turkey's doing, when really, Turkey, as Omar said, is not intending to send any Turkish national troops into Mosul City. That would be extremely incendiary. But there is a fear of this operation, as difficult and complex as it is, is only really a shadow of the difficulty to come after the operation in many ways. And so I think this aspect that Omar points to of, of needing to make sure that there's a coalescing of Iraqi interest in making sure that this is an Iraqi cause, reclaiming Iraqi territory by Iraqis, you know, this type of statement against Turkey is really effective at firing up that sentiment. Now, we, we referred there earlier, um, Omar, when you were talking about the situation after the battle for Mosul, what happens next? And that, that's actually a really interesting point. What, what do we expect to actually happen once the battle for Mosul is over? What are the big next battles? But, but also, what are the actions by, by Iraq's government? Um, how, how do they move on from there? So in terms of the uh, Islamic State, once they lose Mosul, they, they really lose a very, very big anchor. They're, they're really their only major anchor remaining in, uh, in Iraq. So to that sense, we're going to see a migration of Islamic State to, to Syria. Uh, and it's going to be all downhill for them from then on. 
So really, that that's the last stand of Islamic states in as as it is right now, as in its formation, as an army on the field rather than an insurgents force in Iraq. Once that's taken, they're back to insurgents warfare with with their actual standing armies, with their actual leadership, shifting predominantly to Syria. As soon as the Islamic State is deemed to be cleared from Mosul City itself, all of these forces, this this ragtag in a sense coalition that's bringing together Sunni, Shia, Kurdish, Turkmen, all sorts of different forces. There are a lot of enduring conflicts between all of these different Iraqi um, militias and fighting forces. And there's going to be really a high risk of what you've seen happen in a couple other places in Iraq, where there is tension and the possibility for skirmishes between forces um, of different ethnicities and different loyalties. We've seen that in Tuz Khermatu. We've seen that a little bit in Tikrit um, after it was liberated. And there was an ISF presence as well as a Shia PMU presence. Basically, moving forward, it's going to be very difficult to continue managing all the different potential conflicts between these different forces for influence and territory and the administration of liberated territories. And this is this is a primary concern for Baghdad and another reason why they're trying to make sure that there is a sense of common cause in this battle, because as soon as that giant common enemy of the Islamic State is gone, there's a fear that smaller civil conflicts will erupt. And if you look at um, just the last decade, there, there's been a precedent for, for something like this that's quite similar. When we had the uh, Ambar awakening and violence decreased dramatically in Iraq, and there was a sense of victory. Um, and what we saw happen was that there was kind of the insurgency remained, but it was very, very downgraded from the threat that it was it used to be. And so there was a shift of focus. And, and now that's a concern, as, as Emily was saying, for, for Baghdad, but also for the United States, because go through all this effort to get this coalition together, to get this com- common focus, this common effort. And then w- once the uh, once the threat is degraded significantly, it's not eliminated. It's it's pushed to the margins. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, these actors, as Emily rightfully described, they start thinking of their their interests, not not in terms of survival, but what can they get? What what it becomes power politics, and, and that's the biggest threat to Iraq right now. Is after after the Islamic State, it's not the Islamic State really anymore because the Islamic State is on the path to being defeated. What happens after Mosul is taken? then all these factions start vying for territory against each other. And that, that's the real threat to Iraqi sovereignty and Iraqi uh, statehood as, as, an, as, a, as a remaining sovereign uh, entity with the territorial integrity of its borders. And this is something, too, that is of great concern within the Baghdad parliament. And that's the reason why they've tried to rush and discuss the sovereignty of Nineveh province and try to say these borders are the way that they are. But no matter what ruling you you issue about the borders of a district or the borders of a province, you can't stop different powers that feel entitled and empowered by their role in reclaiming that province or reclaiming that district from saying that this is this is something that's rightfully ours. And another issue as well, as soon as the Islamic State is routed, there's an ongoing enormous humanitarian crisis for all the civilians that are in Mosul, um, in the city and in the province. We've already seen just since March of this year, according to the UNHCR, we've seen 62,300 displaced from Mosul just since March. You are seeing people seeking to flee from within Mosul. And there's really an international effort to try and respond to what the UN says might be one of the largest refugee situations they've dealt with. Um, but really, it's it's going to take that first two weeks of the offensive 
itself to see exactly what the extent of sort of civilians leaving the city is going to look like. It looks like there's there's a lot to be taken care of even after the the offensive has taken place. Um, but but we're not there yet, right? So so first they actually have to take the city, and and the Islamic State hasn't exactly been sitting around, you know, waiting for them to come. Um, what do we know that they've actually been doing? Um, there's been some talk of of defenses that the Islamic State has set up, and we know from previous similar offensives that the IED threat and and things like that are, are very significant in these offensives. Um, like, what, what's the current situation actually of the Islamic State controlling Mosul and preparing for the the offensive? They've had ample time to know that this is coming. They've they've known this. The operation is gonna is gonna happen and. And they've been preparing for it. So IEDs remain the biggest threats, um, but it's also other other defenses that they've been building up, including anti-tank ditches, minefields, uh, defensive positions, barricades, tunnels, um, foxholes, trenches. It's the whole gamut, and including efforts to conceal their positions from overhead surveillance, um, because obviously the airstrikes remain one of their de- biggest threats uh, that that's used against them. Also, just the sheer size of Mosul, especially when you get deep inside the urban terrain, you have very narrow streets, uh, as we've seen as we've seen repeatedly across uh, both Iraq and Syria, and across you know modern history. Really, fighting in urban terrain is is very very difficult, even in the mechanized age, perhaps especially in the mechanized age. So, so in that sense, um, it's definitely. I mean, if they if they do decide to stand fast and and give a strong fight, they're going to inflict extremely heavy casualties. There will be a lot of collateral damage. Um, and yes, they will ultimately lose, but they really could destroy the city with them as they lose it. So, so that's the big concern here, is not only for the refugees, and, and that's the priority in terms of human lives, but also for the city itself and, and its historic significance. And, and, and if it's as severely damaged in this operation, how does that affect the aftermath? Uh, how, do the Sun- how do the Sunni population respond to that, uh, especially as they see this, uh, you, you know, this force coming from Baghdad? predominantly Shiite uh, coming in and and invading the city. An issue that's been prevalent in the Iraqi cities that have been liberated from the Islamic State is the notion among some Iraqis that communities, especially in Mosul, welcomed some of the Islamic State fighters into the city. And this makes some of that task of motivating the the Iraqi population to be behind this cause of, of pushing out the Islamic State it makes it more difficult because the civilian population within Mosul, there's some antagonism towards some of them for having welcomed this presence into the city. And this is very complicated because you're talking about a million people. More than that, it was estimated to be 1.5 million people at the time of the Islamic State invading Mosul in June 2014. But this is an enduring issue that's causing a lot of conflict and really a lot of mistrust between Iraqis as they're getting behind this offensive. So in a way, it sounds like the offensive for Mosul won't necessarily be a big, um, strong push into the city center and and the liberation um, just happens and Iraqi flags everywhere. This could become a a very extended, ugly fight, if I'm hearing you guys correctly. Yeah, we're talking about very likely months here. I mean, first, remember that this this battle is is likely going to occur in phases. So we have the uh, initial phase of advancing to the city itself. They're not at the position to launch an attack on the city as of right now. They still have to get to the city. So we're talking about uh, going up Highway 1, Highway 80, uh, advancing from the north and the east uh, to link up with those forces and, and create that siege of the city. 
Uh, once that happens, they, there's likely going to be a pause where they bring up reinforcements, uh, set their battle plans, clear minefields, uh, bring up logistics, and then they push within the city. And then once you get to the push within the city, uh, it could go from anything uh, to the highly optimistic and hopeful scenario where the Islamic State largely bails out and flees the city. So the other scenario where, where they stand fast and, and fight block by block and it becomes a very dreadful grind for the Iraqis and, and just a very difficult battle. Uh, remember, I mean, there are cases in Iraq proper where, where the, even the United States military, I would recall, if you recall the battles for Fallujah, even the U.S. Uh, military, the strongest army in, in the world, uh, basically, had a lot of difficulty uh, clearing out uh, determined defenders, which, you know, is, could be the same thing here in Mosul. It's, it's, it's very hard to tell. I mean, a lot of it depends on the Islamic State's fighters themselves and whether they decide to, to make a strong stand or not. So I, I would say more likely they will make a strong stand just because Mosul is so important. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's likely a battle of months rather than weeks. So you, you mentioned the different phases going into, into the offensive. When exactly do we suspect these phases are really going to kick off? Um, like when do we see the, the Iraqi forces really go in and constrict the city of Mosul? And, and when do they make it to the point where they can actually fight inside the city? So it looks like uh, the first phase, the first advance to the city outskirts uh, is imminent. Uh, the preparations are largely complete. Uh, the, the logistics have been set up. And so I would say within the next uh, week or two, we, we, should, we should be expecting the, uh, the push towards the city. Um, and then probably sometime in November is when we're going to see the initial advance into the city itself. And then once, once that happens, it's, again, it largely comes down to just how much resistance they face, and it could go for, for months after that to actually clear the city itself. Well, that's all very interesting. I, I think we shed a lot of light on the issue of the, the Battle of Mosul. So thank you, Omar Lamrani, our senior military analyst, and Emily Hawthorne, our Middle East analyst, for joining us and kind of explaining this issue. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Ben Sheen, and with me today is Chief Science and Technology Analyst Rebecca Keller to talk about Hyperloop. Now, Rebecca, here at Stratfor, we take a close interest in new and emerging technologies and specifically their, their ability to change the world in which we live. Mm -hmm. So my first question is, what's Hyperloop and why is it important? So Hyperloop is an idea that Elon Musk, uh, the founder of SpaceX and Tesla, put out in 2013. He isn't working on it himself, technically, but he released an open source paper with this idea for high speed travel. So not like so we have high speed rail, we have airplanes, but this is a little bit different. If you think about those old bank tubes where you would send your checks up through the air tube, it's kind of like that, but on a whole other level. So basically you remove friction, you remove all of the things that require energy to travel, and you can go really, really fast without a whole lot of energy. So that sounds easy, right? Just put it in a tube like a <laughs> yes, absolutely. Right no, there's a lot of considerations. You're not moving a small tube with paper in it. You're moving a tube that has potentially people in it, commodities, goods. So how do you remove friction? So it's a tube that's under a near vacuum. So instead of acting like you're on ground where there's a lot of air resistance, it's like you're operating at really high altitudes. And then instead of moving on a track that would have friction, you're floating. So how do you make the train or the pod float? Um, you can use air, which is what Elon Musk proposed, or you can use magnetic levitation. So we have magnetic levitation with high-speed trains already. 
uh, one of the companies was looking at was called passive magnetic levitation, which would only be active when the train was moving, which would reduce the energy needed. So there's little things like that that you have to consider when putting these together. That being said, no one's close yet. Everyone's got dates like 2020, 2019 in their head as far as when they this this new technology will be active, but there's still a lot of engineering technicalities to work out. Um, so why does it matter? As you've said, technology and geopolitics are intertwined. You can't have one without the other. And there's a couple ways that uh, Hyperloop could matter, should it be implemented in a reasonable time frame. In geopolitics, we look at constraints. And, and one of the constraints we look at is congestion and how infrastructure moves people and goods and how it does that efficiently, how does that does that cheaply. Um, Hyperloop has the potential to remove a lot of the constraints of congestion. And, and you actually mentioned that in the analysis you yeah. wrote about how we evolved from uh, ocean-going transport to then going across distances mm -hmm. over land using rail to move heavy yeah. goods and people and the advent of the automobile. But now uh, we haven't really had a game-changing technology you know, in the last century or so. So how is this? Well, I, I would stop you there. I would say one game-changing technology we've had in transport is the container ship, okay. um, because that allowed us to cheaply move um, consumer goods uh, across the globe and sort of buoyed globalization as we know it. That being said, we haven't had a increase in speed to the extent that Hyperloop would do that, or one that does it at low cost, which is really the selling point that Elon Musk brought. Because when Elon Musk proposed the idea, it was in response to a proposed high-speed rail project in California that was going to be extremely high cost. So bringing the cost down is a big part of this project and a big goal of this project. That being said, there's a lot of unknown still. So what, whether that is actually achievable is still unknown. Another thing you mentioned as well is actually being able to travel from point A to point B very quickly is all well and good. But when you're looking specifically at the, the onboarding or the offloading and the actual uh, the infrastructure around, especially with the movement of goods from place to place, that's where you really see congestion. So actually, there are other problems that need to be solved around Hyperloop for it to be effective. Yeah, absolutely. So Hyperloop's not the only solution. Um, it, it's, not a, a panacea. It's, it's not a panacea. It's not going to completely solve all of the problems. And honestly, there are, there are a couple ways you could use Hyperloop. You could use it to move goods or you could use it to move people. And it may solve one or the other, it may solve neither. Um, it still remains to be seen, but it is certainly an interesting technology to watch. Um, where we think it has the most potential is in short distance movement of goods, because that's the, the smallest scale, the most reasonable scale. And it's not moving people. There's a whole lot of other factors when you move people. There's the potential for motion sickness. There's the, the increased liability issues. So looking at ports where you've got to move a container, because with all the goods from the ship to the yard, to the truck, there's a lot of those stopping points that you're talking about. So Hyperloop has the potential to increase port efficiency. And we're seeing a lot of potential for increased port congestion, especially as container ships get larger and larger as the shipping industry struggles with consolidation and a, a slow global growth and, and continues to try to find ways to survive in that environment. And you mentioned there are three main companies in North America that are looking at this technology, mm -hmm. but clearly there are global applications. And we've seen different countries around the world express an interest in Hyperloop. Mm -hmm. uh, what places Oh, do you think you're going to start developing this technology for the short distance high-speed transfer that we're talking about? Right. So um, the United Arab Emirates, DP World is a port operator there, is, is looking at, at using it in one of their ports. Um, Russia has expressed a lot of interest in using it to move goods as well. We could even see it at LA Long Beach. They're, they're doing a preliminary studies there as well. 
fantastic. So the question I have, how soon can I get on it? Because I really want to, especially in Los Angeles, travel for me to be faster than I normally can. So are we talking years, decades? How long is it going to be? Um, certainly the 2020 proposal dates that a lot of the companies have put out there are probably rather optimistic, I would say. Um, we're probably looking at a decade, probably more, before they're used on short term and, and even more before they're used for people. So you've got quite a wait. Okay, well, I look forward to the day when it does come around. Thanks. Becca, thank you so much for You're taking welcome. the time to explain this today. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Stratfor Talks. If you'd like to learn more about the potential commercial and geopolitical implications of Hyperloop technology, we'll include links to recent analysis in the show notes. And be sure to continue following Stratfor for more of our in-depth analyses on the upcoming battle for Mosul. We'd also like to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about the show, you can leave us a message and we'll try to include it in a future episode of the podcast. You can reach Stratfor Talks at 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917. You can also email us at podcast at stratfor.com or leave a review or comment about the show. For more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that reveals the underlying significance and future implications of emerging world events, visit us at stratfor.com. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, at Stratfor. Thanks again for listening.